Our first reading today is 2 Samuel chapter 13 verses 23 to 39. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has had shearers come. Will the king and his attendants please join me? No, my son, the king replied. All of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not... Please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him. So he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered his men, Listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, Strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules and fled. While they were on their way, the report came back to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. The king stood up, tore his clothes and lay down on the ground. And all his attendants stood by with their clothes torn. But Jonadab, son of Shemir, David's brother, said, My lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My lord the king should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. Meanwhile, Absalom had fled. Now the man standing watch looked up and saw many people on the road west of him coming down the side of the hill. The watchman went and told the king, I see men in the direction of Horanaim on the side of the hill. Jonadab said to the king, See, the king's sons have come. It has happened just as your servant said. As he finished speaking, the king's sons came in wailing loudly. The king too and all his attendants wept very bitterly. Absalom fled and went to Tamal, son of Amehud, the king of Geshur. But King David mourned many days for his son. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. The second reading is Luke chapter 15, 11 to 32. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. 
so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If it's okay, I might rearrange this bench so that my readers are all sitting together with Steph in the middle. So the non-readers, if you'd like to keep Helen company, that'd be great. And they'll give that to Steph. There we are. Well, we are in a series of sermons looking at the last third of David's life. 
And last week we looked at a difficult and distressing text, the rape of Tamar by her half-brother Amnon. That is the first half of chapter 13 of 2 Samuel. Well, in our reading this morning, we heard uh, about how that led directly to Amnon's murder by his half-brother Absalom. And having murdered Amnon, we heard how Absalom flees to his maternal grandfather, Talmai, king of Geshur. What we're going to do now, and you may like to uh, open your pew Bibles back to page 250, because what we're going to do now is we're going to read on into chapter 14. And I've got uh, some readers here who are going to help with that. So uh, chapter 14, page 250, verses in the first instance, just verses 1 to 11. Thank you. Take, take us away, Steph. Job, son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. So Job sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, Pretend, pretend you are in mourning, dress in mourning clothes, and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Job put the words in her mouth. When the woman from Tekoa went to the king... She fell with her face to the ground to pay him honour, and she said, Help me, your majesty. The king asked her, What is troubling you? She said, I am a widow. My husband is dead. I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with each other in the field and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant. They say, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. Then we will get rid of the heir as well. They would put out the only burning coal I have left leaving my husband neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. The king said to the woman, Go home and I will issue an order in your behalf. But the woman from Tekoa said to him, Let my lord the king pardon me and my family and let the king and his throne be without guilt. The king replied, If anyone says anything to you, bring them to me, and they will not bother you again. She said, Then let the king invoke the Lord his God to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction, so that my son will not be destroyed. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, Not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Brilliant. Thank you. That's great. Well, Um, We haven't actually found out yet, but we all know that actually the situation that the woman is describing is fictitious. It's a made-up story. It's a ruse, or perhaps a hypothetical. Uh, David will find this out for himself soon. But in her hypothetical, the legal situation that the widow describes is indeed complex. 
as a widow in an agrarian patriarchal society, all she had in the world was her two sons. They had farm, um, their dead father's estate, and provide for her through her old age. These young men, apparently, um, they're not yet married. They're yet to have children of their own. So these two, these two young men, one son kills the other out in the field in the heat of the moment in the context of a quarry, quarrel. But the law of Moses is extremely clear in circumstances such as this. Um, as a murderer, the surviving brother must be handed over to the so-called avenger of blood to be put to death. The avenger of blood would be pr- presumably the next closest living male relative. And in order for Israel to be innocent before the Lord, the murderer must be put to death. So the situation appears to be straightforward. Justice demands the death of the surviving son. However, it isn't as simple as that. For the widow's speech um, makes it clear that there'd be devastating consequences if that was to happen. One of the devastating consequences that she describes is that her husband would be left without name or descendant amongst the people of Israel. Now, that was considered to be an indescribable tragedy, to die and for your name to disappear from, from, from history, from the history of the people of God. In every other situation, the community would do all that it could to make sure that that would never happen. The other devastating consequence that she doesn't need to elaborate on is that she, as a widow, would be left destitute. She'd die of starvation. She implies that her clan's motive in seeking the blood of her son is to take possession of the inheritance, and that's not unlikely, but the suggestion also implies that no one in her extended family is willing to take her in. If justice is carried through, she will die of starvation. So the king doesn't hesitate. In order to avoid these twin devastating consequences, the death sentence will be commuted. The murderer absolved. The guilty one will be justified. That is to say, it will be just as though he'd never murdered his brother. The king's authority is such that Having given the word, no one will dare touch him. Verses 12 to 23, please. Then the woman said, Let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. Speak. He replied. The woman said, Why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. Like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. And now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought, I will speak to the king. Perhaps he will grant his servant's request. Perhaps the king will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who is trying to cut off both me and my son from God's inheritance. And now your servant says, May the word of my lord the king secure my inheritance. 
For my Lord the King is like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. May the Lord your God be with you. The king said to the woman, Don't keep from me the answer to which... Don't keep from me the answer to what I'm going to ask you. Let my Lord the king speak, the woman said. The king asked, Isn't the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered, As surely as you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything my lord the king says. Yes, it was your servant Joab who instructed me to do this and who put all these words into the mouth of your servant. Your servant Joab did this to change the present situation. My lord has wisdom like that of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in the land. The king said to Joab, Very well, I will do it. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay him honour, and he blessed the king. Joab said, Today your servant knows that he has found favour in your eyes, my lord the king, because the king has granted his servant's request. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. Thank you. That's lovely. Uh, Well, it finally emerges that uh, the wise woman's uh, presentation is a charade. It's a ruse, or perhaps more sympathetically, it's a parable, an enacted parable. Uh, Like uh, the prophet Nathan two chapters earlier, the wise woman of Tekoa delivers her coup de grace. You are the man. And we find out the wise woman's story is really a parable. A parable about David and his two sons. The point of similarity between the woman's parable and David's real-life situation is this. Sometimes the rules need to be bent. Sometimes the, the law needs to be interpreted flexibly so that the spirit of the law can be preserved even if the letter of the law is broken. In Absalom's case, as a murderer of his brother, he must die. However, it isn't as simple as all that. Whilst it wasn't Absalom's job to administer justice in Amnon's case, Amnon had indeed forfeited his life by raping his sister. The punishment for rape, according to the law of Moses, was death. And we gave that some thought last week. So although Absalom committed murder, he was actually doing something that David should have done. Furthermore, the whole state of Israel is negatively affected by Absalom's exile. The royal house is divided. The king is distracted and therefore business is disrupted. Division, distraction, disruption... Boy, we're familiar with those, aren't we? I mean, that's, that's just what Satan uses against his church continually. Division, distraction, disruption. Um, the welfare of God's people is in jeopardy here. 
and indeed the attention lavished on Absalom at this point in the narrative, David's third son strongly suggests that everybody expects him to be next in line to the throne after Amnon. Amnon was the firstborn son, he's now dead. The secondborn son, Kiliab, also known as Daniel, son of Abigail, he barely ranks a mention anywhere. We don't know much about him. Perhaps he died in childhood. I don't know. But Absalom seems to be the guy everyone expects to be king. And wherever people are ruled by royal dynasties, people become obsessed with succession. Who will be the next king? So then, with Absalom in exile, there is profound insecurity. The future is uncertain. And with an insecure future, who can get on with business? David must resolve this situation one way or another so that the future is clear. And there's another factor which may be influencing things here. This may be important. Um, it might be intentional. The parable that the widow, that the wise woman of, of Tekoa, the parable that she, she comes up with is remarkably similar to the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. In that story, two brothers go out together to the field. One murders the other. Cain, the murderer, is brought to account by God who banishes him as punishment, consigning him to a future in exile as a restless wanderer, forever in exile. Cain replies that his punishment is more than he can bear and that others will find him and kill him. And so God partially relents, placing on him a seal of protection. David, perhaps sensing the resonance, he may feel that here, here is a story from the Bible that helps me out. Here is a story from the Bible that allows me to resolve the competing challenges of justice and mercy in this situation, in my own life. Perhaps he's thinking that. God himself commutes the death penalty. Indeed, although God has sovereignly decreed that all human beings must die, for the wages of sin is death. He himself, God himself is at work to reverse his own decision. For the dead person is forever estranged from the Lord, for God is a God of the living, not of the dead. Uh, just verse 24, please. But the king said, He must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. Who? Why did David do that? Um, it's a mystery. The Bible doesn't tell us. We can't know for sure, and it's hard to guess. Perhaps David, in bringing Absalom back but then refusing to see him, keeping him at arm's length, Perhaps David is trying to imitate God's action with respect to Cain, that Cain was allowed to continue living, but away from the presence of the Lord. But as everyone can see, as we can see, David's decision looks unresolved, and it will create problems. What David is saying, accidentally, but in effect, is that Absalom is forgiven the murder. He is forgiven. David has laid down his legal right to repayment in kind. But there'll be no reconciliation, no restoration of relationship. Uh, he can do that. Um, forgiveness and reconciliation are two quite different things. Uh, he's saying there is forgiveness, 
there isn't reconciliation. But we're all sensing that David is making a mistake here because we know that there's another story somewhere in the Bible about a dad who was estranged from his son, an exiled son, and when that son came back, the dad saw him still a long way off and filled with compassion. He ran to him, fell on his neck, embracing him, kissing him, ordered a robe be put on his shoulders, sandals on his feet, a ring on his finger, and then he threw a party. That, that dad knew how to make a son feel loved and accepted. That father actually made himself nothing, throwing his reputation away. He runs. Important men did not do that in the Middle East. Apparently they still don't do that in the Middle East. He, he made himself nothing. He, he, he made his reputation, he threw it away. It was of no concern. He ran when he saw his son. And he ran making himself nothing in order to make his son something. Restored and reconciled. A full member of his household. Um... David, perhaps fearing for his own reputation, perhaps not wanting to be accused of partiality, David preserves his reputation but makes his son nothing, ignoring him. And none of us like to be ignored. Uh, Verses 25 to 27, please, Steph. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him, he would weigh it, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar, and she became a beautiful woman. Uh, This uh, sudden detail about looks and and glamour is, is ominous in the narrative uh, you see, our narrator has been leading us through the, the stories of First and Second Samuel, uh, and he's taught us along the way not to be impressed by superficial good looks. He has taught us uh, that uh, this is not important, at least when it comes to leadership ability. Looks and leadership ability are two quite separate things, for the Lord looks uh, at the heart. That people... Uh, around Absalom are praising him for his beauty is ominous because now we know that these folk around him who are beguiled by this handsome charismatic charm, we know that these people don't know that that's no indication of leadership ability and that by following him simply because he's charming and good looking, they will blind themselves to the Lord's will and the Lord's ways. To such people, luxuriant hair suggests virility. But in the Old Testament, men generally don't cut their hair except in association with a vow or as a ritual in devotion, a cleanliness ritual in devotion to God. To have your hair cut for practical reasons without reference to God again suggests a profane man. Um, stories of Esau and Samson are going to come to mind as we hear this. And indeed, Absalom's hair will play a role in his downfall. Uh, Verses 28 to the end of the chapter, please. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab refused to come to him. So he... 
Send a second time, but he refused to come. Then he said to his servants, Look, Job's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Job did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, Why Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom said to Job, Look, I sent word to you and said, Come here, so I can send you to the king and ask, Why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me if I were still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face, and if I am guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom, and he came in and bowed with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Well, uh, Absalom sure knows how to get somebody's attention, doesn't he? Hit him in the wallet. Absalom acts desperately because Absalom is desperate. To be sure, he has everything he needs to survive, indeed, probably to thrive physically, but he is craving something that we all crave. He's craving acceptance. Absalom needed to be both forgiven and reconciled in order for his justification to be meaningful. He didn't simply want to be legally exonerated, but rather he wanted to be loved and accepted by his father. Give me acceptance or death is a paraphrase of his speech. And sure, Absalom does get the embrace. He gets the kiss that he needed. But it was two years in coming, and that's a long time to wait. It's a long time to feel rejected by your dad. And parental rejection, rejection by either your father or your mother or both, parental rejection is tremendously painful. It is heartbreaking. And things that are broken malfunction. Um, The human heart is no different. Uh, David has been a distant father, and that will turn out to be a costly mistake for David. But again, we'll, we'll look at that next week. Uh, In review, this text has given us a lot to think about. Did David do the right thing, pardoning Absalom, or should he have obeyed the law of Moses and put him to death? The text gives us remarkably little help in working out the answer to that question. And actually, you can argue it either way. The wise woman of Tekoa does indeed seem to speak into David's life with godly wisdom. And I think we're supposed to see that and affirm it. Mercy does indeed triumph over judgment. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. On the other hand, when David committed adultery and then arranged for the death of Uriah, um, her wife, it was the prophet Nathan who came to him with a parable. And in response to the prophet, with his parable, David prayed. In our text today, Joab is no prophet, and David doesn't pray. 
David could be making a big, big mistake in forgiving Absalom the crime of murder, a crime that one way or another does mean that Absalom's life is forfeit. However, given that the text doesn't answer the question for us, did David do the right thing? Given that the Bible doesn't answer that question for us, it probably isn't interested in that question. Perhaps the text is inviting us to consider the power of manipulation. Joab manipulated David by way of the Tekoan woman, and he was likewise manipulated by Absalom. Hopefully there's a better way. Perhaps the, the text is inviting us to consider the power of story. We, we all like stories. We all like stories read to us. Thank you, guys. Uh, certainly, uh, stories get people's attention. Parables in particular, that's the whole point of a parable. Parables are stories to help us to see things differently by making a new connection in our brains. Or to put that in technical terms, a parable is an extended analogy, a long metaphor with one or more points of similarity between the parable and the thing that the parable's really talking about. Parables aren't usually allegories. You may have noticed that in the woman's story, her two sons don't stand for David's two sons. It's not an, it's not an allegory. Rather, it's a fictitious story that has one or more points of similarity to a real story. And those points of similarity help us to make a new connection. Well, in today's text, the parable is an enacted parable. It's a play. The one who taught in parables, uh, the woman, um, uh, the teacher in this text, she, she puts on a special costume and then she gets sent to makeup where she receives no makeup. That's her makeup. Then she gets into character. She learns her lines, although in fact actually Joab only gives her half a line. She's going to have to ad-lib the whole of scene number two. And then she walks on stage. Today's text is all the justification we need for the continuing offering of the performing and dramatic arts in the service of God. If you want to get people's attention, put on a play or make a film. But undoubtedly, the thing that does get our attention in the text today is the way in which through this interplay of law and grace, acceptance and rejection, we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. What, what way? What way has God devised? Well, it's the way of the cross. Jesus made himself nothing in order that we might be something. Jesus made himself nothing, dying on a cross in order to take upon himself as our king our guilt, our, our iniquity, in order that we might be something, forgiven and reconciled, justified, saved, saved from sin, death, and condemnation, saved from eternal exile in painful nothingness, saved from nothingness to something, belonging to God forever. Well, um, rejection breaks hearts, 
But acceptance heals them. And it is in knowing the acceptance of God, um, the, the lavish and overwhelming acceptance of God that we have in Jesus Christ, it's in knowing that acceptance that we are healed um, and that we thereafter delight in every opportunity to make ourselves nothing in order that others might be something to the glory of God. And to paraphrase a friend of mine, if you understand that, you understand everything. To God be the glory. Amen.